So if you guys would turn to Jonah chapter 3, I'll get there in a second. I want to do a brief recap of what we've gone through in Jonah so far. Now, let's just take a second to catch up on the story, all right? So there's this place called Nineveh. That's how the story starts. It's the capital city region in the land of Assyria. And this region of Nineveh, their wicked ways have drawn the gaze of a holy and just God. Just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God could not allow the level of sin that they were participating in to continue. It's in this time that the city of Nineveh is going to be punished for their sins by a holy God. But God, in his kindness, is not going to let the city be destroyed unannounced to its inhabitants. So, he calls this man named Jonah. He says, Jonah, go to this people and declare to them the coming destruction. But Jonah don't want to go, right? Jonah literally runs away from God in the opposite direction. He hops on a boat and he gets out of Dodge. Or so he thinks, right? Or so he thinks. On his journey to try to escape the all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful God of the universe, Jonah happens to run right back into God. What a shocker, right? Jonah is now faced with the consequences of not heeding God's command and call, right? The waters around the boat begin to rage. The boat he has charted is about to be overturned. Each of the men on the boat call out to their false god for help with no avail, obviously. All seems lost until Jonah is discovered as the source of this divine storm due to his disobedience. And Jonah is picked up and hurled into the sea. Soon as they toss him in, the sea stop because they have received the one whom they've sought. Jonah begins to feel the weight of his disobedience as he sinks deeper and deeper into the crushing depths of God's judgment. And then he gets eaten by a giant sea creature. Good story, huh? Let me ask you a question. What if the story ended there? What if the story ended in verse 1, Or in chapter 1, verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging, the end. The story could stop there. It could. And it would be a just and right thing, because here's a person who has disobeyed a holy God, and he must be punished for sin. God must punish sin. If it did, the story would be about God's judgment over sin. The consequences of disobedience in our lives. The justice of God. But the story doesn't end there. It keeps going, right? As as Jonah is sinking into the sea and this great fish swallows him up, he remains inside of that fish for three days. Jonah must have thought he was going to die. That his destruction was all but assured, so Jonah stops running from God and instead looks to God. Jonah turns from his disobedience, and decides to obey. Jonah repents of his rebellion against God with this phrase, that which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. And in verse 10, chapter 2, records God's response to Jonah's repentance. It says, then the Lord commanded the fish, and 
It vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Nice. Everybody who grew up in church knows this story. We know what the story is about, right? To most, the story of Jonah is about a guy who, who ran from God, got eaten by fish, is there for three days, and gets spit back onto shore. That's what we know of Jonah. But the story isn't over yet. The story has just barely begun. The miracle of a man being swallowed and surviving inside of a fish for three days is going to be completely overshadowed by something else, an even bigger miracle. You see, the, the story of Jonah begins with Nineveh, with Nineveh drawing God's gaze on account of their wickedness. So yes, Jonah's rebellion and restoration have been addressed, but what about Nineveh's? What will happen to Nineveh? And today, that's what we find out about, what is going to happen to, happen to Nineveh. And we're going to learn some pretty amazing things about the heart of God in this. We're going to learn some things about ourselves, some things that we need to fix and change in our lives, some orientations we need to shore up. So I want you guys to stay with me till the end, because all this is going to culminate in the end, in the application. Today, we're not going to read the entire story at once. We're just going to go through section by section. And so we're going to start with verses 1 and 2, and we're going to look at this very first section of the recommissioning of Jonah. Verses 1 and 2, we see this recommissioning of Jonah. It says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. The very first thing that happens is this recommissioning of Jonah. And in the text, we don't actually get much about what's going on with Jonah. Did Jonah learn his lesson? What is Jonah thinking or feeling in this moment? We don't know yet. We don't know what's going on with Jonah. He's clearly been delivered out of uh, the, the belly of the fish by the hand of God, taken out of the waters of judgment and placed upon dry land. All we get after this this moment of Jonah's salvation being taken back up to dry land is that God speaks to him again. God gives Jonah a second call and a second chance to do what God has called him to do. He gets a chance for a new beginning. Not all are so fortunate. God could have rightly just ended Jonah and sought another to do his will. That would have been a just and right action for God to do. When you break a law, you face the punishment. In God's economy, any breaking of any law incurs an infinite debt that cannot be repaid. The punishment of sin is death. God could have just levied this punishment against Jonah for disobeying his command and moved on. But in this recommissioning of Jonah... This second chance, we're actually given a glimpse of the heart of God that we didn't see before. We're able to see God's nature, his character, and his, his heart for mankind. We see God's mercy all of a sudden. His compassion standing right next to his justice, right next to his holiness. We see, a, we see this just God angry over sin, and then we see a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of compassion... And in these attributes, there's no contradiction, as some people assume. There's no contradiction between these things. Each attribute actually sits in harmony with the other. Not as this yin and yang kind of duality. Not as this, this dual nature with dark and light, good and evil, where God can just choose at any nature what he wants. 
God is not a capricious God like a child who decides in one moment to share his toys and another one to take them back. God is consistent always in his nature. God does not simply choose to be angry over sin in one moment and loving in another. God does not simply choose to be merciful in one moment and just in another. God is love. God is justice. God is mercy. God is the righteous judge who judges and punishes sin. If there appears to be any inequity in the nature and attributes of God, it is because our limited ability to see and understand, not because of any defect in his character. We do not see with a sight that extends before creation and into eternity future. We just do not. We do not perceive the fullness of the spiritual realm. We are limited, he is not. Any appearance of inequity is due to the limits of our nature, not because of a defect or limit in his nature. So Jonah gets a second chance. Not because he deserves it, but because God is merciful. Jonah gets a new beginning not because he's good, but because God is good. Jonah gets a do-over not because he is worthy, but because God is compassionate and gracious and forgiving and loving. So Jonah receives the call again. He's recommissioned by God to speak God's words to the Ninevites. And in so doing, God displays this heart of compassion and love to Jonah. And now Jonah, like the first call, has a chance to respond. Right? So let's look at the response of Jonah in verses 3 and 4. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. This, verse, this first verse here is almost identical to what we see in chapter 1, where Jonah has his initial call. The phrase starts exactly the same way in Hebrew. It says, So Jonah arose. But instead of this time, instead of fleeing to Tarshish from, the pres- from before the presence of Yahweh, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. The last time Jonah was called by God, he went in the opposite direction. This time he would heed, he would head to the location where God had called him to do the work that God had called him to do. And the text gives us this description of Nineveh, what Nineveh is. It says it's this exceedingly great city, a three days walk, which means it takes three days to get across this vast area. Now, researchers have shown that the city of Nineveh proper wasn't actually that big. It was only three to seven miles across. So this description most assuredly is the region surrounding Nineveh, all the kind of suburb cities around Nineveh. And archaeological research shows that this is an area that covers about 55 miles Okay, 55 miles, an exceedingly great city is how it's described. So there must have been tons of people that lived there. And you might be wondering, why, why would God, if God is a God of love, destroy such a vast and great ancient city like Nineveh? There must have been tens of thousands of people that lived in Nineveh. Why would God destroy them? Well, history shows that the Assyrian people were a brutal people. Absolutely brutal. Harsh, violent, cruel, immoral, wicked. Assyria was known most of all for their brutality specifically through their many military conquests. Assyria prided itself in giving 
being given victory from their false gods over military conquests. Assyrian stone reliefs show over and over again their military conquests by showing these depictions of people being beheaded, their enemies being impaled on spikes, their captives being tortured, dismembered, and being left to be eaten by dogs. That was the common practice. This nation also had come in conflict with the nation of Israel, with God's people. They had their eyes set on total domination, total dominion, total control under any circumstance. And for these reasons, Nineveh's stench, just like the city of Sodom and Gomorrah before them, had grown too foul, their indiscretion too great, their desire to dominate God's people too strong, and so God sent this messenger to proclaim their coming destruction to them. And so Jonah goes into Nineveh, and he begins to proclaim this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Such a simple message. I don't know if you've read the other prophets. I hope you have. Their messages aren't nearly as short. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Only five words in the Hebrew. That's all it was. That's all that's recorded what Jonah's saying. Maybe this is all Jonah said. Maybe he said more. We don't know. But this simple message is powerful enough on its own. We're not terribly informed of what was going on at the time in Nineveh. We don't have a ton of details, but we do know some things. First, we know that Nineveh was brutal and wicked and worshipped false gods and took pleasure in taking life in horrible ways. But we also know that the kingdom of of Assyria at this time was on shaky ground. History shows that they were facing famine after famine, enemy attack after enemy attack, and inward revolts against them. And so... The king of Nineveh was afraid that his seat of power would be overturned, right? And on top of this, there was this event recorded uh, that a, a total solar eclipse happened over the land of Assyria in this time, right? So many of these things would have been seen as omens from the gods that Assyria and Nineveh were in trouble, so Jonah coming in with this message was one more thing that God had set up for the Assyrians to let them know that they were about to be underneath the judgment of God. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for overthrown here uh, can mean a few things. It can mean destroyed, that's one meaning. It could be overturned, like a plate is overturned, or it can simply mean just to turn. And so we're not sure how the Ninevites understood this message, but whatever it was, they understood. And so they probably believed it to mean destroyed, but what ended up happening is they just turned, right? And that's what we see in the next section, is the Ninevites, the people, repented, right? We see the repentance of the Ninevites in verses 3 through 10, or 5 through 10. Take a look at, at, at at verse 5. This is the action of the people. What did the people do after hearing God's message of impending destruction? It says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What a dramatic statement this is. Every inclination up to this point would lead you to believe that God is going to destroy this nation. But instead of God destroying Nineveh, something else happens. You would imagine that this nation, which is an enemy of God who hated Israel, upon hearing the message of a Hebrew prophet would scoff and laugh and mock Jonah. That his, his message and his God would be scoffed at. But that's not what happened. Not only 
did the Ninevites hear the message of Jonah from, but they heeded the message as well. And the text is a little unclear here. Technically speaking, it says that the, in our Bibles, you might read the, the people of Nineveh believed in God. That end probably shouldn't be there. It just probably should say that the Ninevites believed God, which likely means that they believed this message, that God was going to overthrow them. It's not clear if there was true conversion in the land of Assyria. There definitely was not lasting conversion because the Assyrian people went back to their wicked ways and were eventually overthrown. They don't exist anymore. But nonetheless, the people of Assyria responded to God's message of impending destruction by putting on sackcloth and fasting. Now, this practice of putting on sackcloth and and fasting, I think, is so foreign to us as Westerners, right? I want you to think about this for a second. When you have a tough day, when your emotions are a little raw, when you're hurting, what do we do? We go home to our cozy three-bedroom, right? We take a hot shower, we soak in the tub, right? We put on our softest jammies, snuggle up on the couch with a pint or a gallon of ice cream, Put a blanket on and watch Netflix, right? That's how we respond to crisis in our lives, right? That's how we deal with the hard stuff. There could be nothing more distinct from fasting and sackcloth and ashes than that, right? As a culture, when we, when we face minor distress, we run away from it into entertainment, into distraction, into comfort. You have a bad day, shop till you drop, You have a bad day, go see a movie. You have a bad day, binge watch your favorite show. You have a bad day, go to the beach, escape, relax, unwind. It's not bad. But whatever you do, don't you dare reflect on it. Don't you dare reflect on it. Don't you dare be introspective. Don't you acknowledge your pain or your grief, just escape it. And don't you dare press into the Lord. That's how our culture is, right? What does it say about our culture? Well, It says a lot of things about our culture. One of the things it says is that we are a fortunate people. That in our distress is usually not that bad. Our pain and our discomfort is usually not that bad that we can run to comfort in times of distress. But when times get really hard, when we hit rock bottom, and I mean rock bottom... When we've plunged to the depths of our despair and are sinking into this endless abyss, we don't escape, we break. When you reach the end of yourself, when you know that there's absolutely nothing left that you can do to fix your situation you're in, when all hope seems lost, you don't grab a pint of Ben and Jerry's because you can't even stomach a sip of water. When you're at your end, The inward misery of your soul becomes the outward reality of your entire being. You wear it. The body rejects comfort because it can have no joy in it. Your tears become your food. Your anguish becomes your dress. Your misery becomes your shelter. That's what fasting and putting on sackcloth in this situation looks like. It's the utter anguish of the soul. We see this biblically over and over again. When Jacob sees the bloodied coat of his son Joseph and believes him to be dead, he puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. We see this in the story of Job, who loses absolutely everything. After total ruinness, ruin and brokenness, he says this in, in Job 16, he says, 
of God. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and thrust my horn in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids. Job is inwardly ruined, and as a sign of that ruin, he clothes himself with a coat of coarse goat hair and throws himself onto the ground. While seemingly unlikely in this situation, while hard to believe that these people who are the enemy of God's people would repent of their evil, this is how the people respond when they heard of their impending doom. Now let's look at how the king responds. That's how the people responds. But how does the king respond? The action of the king. It says in verse 6, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast should be covered with sackcloth and let men call earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king responds just like the people by putting on sackcloth and ashes right, and fasting. But the king had a few more steps to take in the process. Before he could take this posture, the king had to arise from his seat on the throne. He had to take off his royal garb before he could put on the sackcloth and sit back down in the ashes. It goes like this. He was sitting, he arose, took off, put on, sat down. What an amazing picture of humility that this is for us. In order for the king to repent, he had to remove himself from the seat of power and authority... He abandoned his seat of rule in recognition of the true ruler. He removed his adornments, his his vestitures of, of royalty, the comfort, the status, the position, the authority that came with it. He laid aside. He took off his plush coat, his fine, bedazzled, rubied coat, took it off and replaced it with a much cruder garb. He went from a high seat of ruling to a seat on the floor with the rest of his people. And then the king made a proclamation to all the people and to all the beasts that they were to fast, no eating, no drinking. So all the people and all the beasts that they would don this this coarse sackcloth on their bodies as a sign of misery and ruin. That all people, but apparently in this section, not the beast, were to call out to God earnestly in hope that God would relent. That all people would turn away from their wicked ways so that God may relent. Again, what an amazing picture of repentance. Repentance, by definition, is turning away from sin and turning to God. This is what happened. Turning away from wickedness and evil and turning to God, calling earnestly upon him. They do so in the hope, the hope, that in their turning, God himself will turn away from his anger and that they will be saved. Notice that they didn't know that God would do this. They hoped. It was a last-ditch effort, a gamble of sorts. They hoped that if God, if they turned, that God would turn. That was their desire. But they had no guarantee of it. 
And the Assyrian king recognized through his removal of himself from the throne who really was in charge. Because a true king can do whatever he wants with his subjects. A true king can do whatever he pleases. Whatever he wants. And so the Assyrian king is saying that God is truly king in this situation, not me. Because he's calling the shots. He can do what he wants. God is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign rule of all, not this king. So Jonah gets a second chance, obeys God, takes this message to the people of Nineveh. The people respond in repentance. The king responds in repentance, recognizing that God is the sovereign ruler, not him. And now it's time for God to respond. Let's look lastly at verse 10, the action of God, how, act, how God responds. Verse 10 says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What an ending this is. Remember, church, this, this story didn't have to end this way. The people could have resisted instead of repented. God could have destroyed them instead of relenting, but he didn't. Just like he didn't with Jonah. Again, God is showing this people, like he did with Jonah, a glimpse of his heart, his compassion, his justice, his grace, his love. Now you may be saying here, hey, 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 pastor, there's a problem here. God can't change his mind. How did God change his mind? How can God say that he's going to destroy a city and then change his mind? Well, well, actually, God is unchangeable. He can't change his mind, which means he must be consistent in all of his dealings. So I wonder if God had already made this provision for people to do this. Well, of course he does. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8 say this. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. You see, God has already made this promise of himself, of how he's going to respond in these situations, and he's acting according to his character. He's established provision against these evil nations that if they will repent, he will relent. Now, what does this passage have to teach us today? What can we glean from this passage? How does it relate? When you walk out of this room, how is your life different than when you came in? What are the things that God has for us to learn? Let me propose this. Are we, are we like Nineveh, a great nation that is beginning to draw the gaze of a holy and just God because of our sin? It's possible. Did you know that since 1970, the CDC has reported that there have been 44.5 million legally induced abortions in the United States alone. 44.5 unborn babies have been killed with government consent in the last 48 years. Are we more brutal than the Ninevites? Do we need to turn away from our violence just in that area alone as a nation? Of course. Do we, as a people... And as a nation, like the Ninevites, need to earnestly seek God, collectively calling on him for forgiveness, without a doubt. This nation has turned away from God. The culture is fleeing from God, just like Jonah did. 
And we're not just turning away from God. We're going as fast as we can in the opposite direction. We've boarded a speedboat to Tarshish. Do we desperately need to turn back to God? Without a doubt. Do we as a people need to respond to wickedness and sin the way that God and the Ninevites did? Without a doubt. I think this story should be convicting to all of us and that we simply do not take sin seriously enough. I'm not sure where we lost it, but somewhere we lost it. We should not have a casual response to sin where we ignore it or cover it or try to escape it. It needs to be dealt with. Sin is overlooked, minimized, and de-emphasized in the church and is highlighted, celebrated, and encouraged in the culture. We're so backwards on our understanding of sin. We don't understand its cause. We don't understand its effects. We don't understand the demands that it makes of us. We don't understand the result that it brings us to. We don't understand its end, its desire for us. We know almost nothing about sin nowadays, it seems like. And we rarely talk about it. Churches have abandoned sermons focusing on passages about sin and have chosen to give positive and encouraging messages about hope and peace and contentment. Those are great, but the reality is there's no hope unless the problem of sin is dealt with. There's no peace to be had in this life or the next if the issue of sin reigning in your mortal body is not addressed. There's no contentment to be had if the force of sin remains present in your life. We should hate sin because, one, God hates sin but also because of what sin is and what sin does. Sin destroys. Sin kills. Sin seeks to devour you. Sin lies in wait for you to lead you into destruction. Sin separates you from others and separates you from God. Sin ruins lives. It destroys nations. It breaks relationships. Sin hurts the heart of God. Sin causes everything evil in this world. Sin ruins, it corrupts, always. If you've ever been in a relationship that has fallen apart, it's because of sin. If you've ever experienced or witnessed suffering and pain and loss, it's because of sin. Sin is the root cause for all evil, all pain, all suffering. Sin causes everything we hate, and so we should hate sin. Just like we see in this passage. And we should respond in a like manner when we address sin. Not casually, but with true brokenness over our sin. In this passage, in this story, God clearly hates sin. Both Jonah and the Ninevites come under the burning anger of God's wrath because of sin. But we also see something else. Ultimately, what this passage is about is God's heart and our response to his heart. The center point of this story is not Jonah's repentance or Nineveh's repentance. It's God's sovereignty, his compassion, his mercy, his love that takes center stage in the story. The miracle of Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days is so completely overshadowed by this miracle of God rescuing Jonah from the fish for a second chance. The miracle of Nineveh's repentance is astounding for sure, but it's overshadowed by the God's heart in that he relents. 
Who is this God who would delay divine retribution for his creature to give them a second chance? Who is this God who, though he burns with anger over sin, sends a messenger in order to allow this evil people to repent? Who is this God who relents, though such an offense has been made and levied against him? Who is that God? That's our God. And who is this Jesus that we worship? Who, like the king of Assyria, humbles himself before God, arises from his throne, sets aside his royal adornments to put on a lesser garb. But instead of the, instead of the king of Assyria, instead of Jesus, like the king of, of Assyria, repenting of sin because he has none, he bears it on himself. Who is this Jesus that willingly accepts the punishment of his people's sins so they don't have to? Who is this Jesus that through his compassion and his love and his mercy offers us the hope of salvation, the removal of sin and its consequences from our lives, the forgiveness of our souls? It's the God of the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth, who we worship. God has revealed himself so clearly to us through stories like this and through the cross, through the resurrection. We must respond in obedience, in repentance, in acceptance of this divine sovereignty and humility. Now listen, if you only get one thing from this, listen to this. We have been called by God to take the message of Jesus into the sick and dying world. But unlike this passage, where the outcome is not known, we know what will happen. We know that if a people repent, that God will relent. They will be saved. Because unlike this story, instead of payment for sin being delayed, for us, because of Christ, the payment of sin has been paid. You and I are the recipients of God's mercy, of his forgiveness, of his love and his compassion. We see it so clearly in Jesus. And now we are called by Jesus himself to go into every nook and cranny of our communities and our world and our relationships with this message on our lips. God came into the world to save sinners. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive newness of life in Christ, Christ alone. We are to go in obedience, to speak in obedience, to respond in obedience because we have seen and know and have experienced who he is. His heart drives our response. We see his heart, respond.